according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. You may turn to Luke chapter 4 this morning. Luke chapter 4, where I hope to wrap up the rejection at Nazareth and uh, take a look at the um, move to Capernaum which is event number three in the Galilean ministry, on our way to the four becoming the fishers of men, which uh, we'll be dealing with as well. Both of those events coming from the Gospel of Matthew. For this morning, though, we are in the Gospel of Luke, the rejection at Nazareth. The, uh, I think the best harmonies uh, have two separate Nazareth rejections, this one here, and then a later one that comes up in uh, event number 33, Nazareth's second rejection of Christ, recorded by both Matthew and Mark. Uh, and the harmony of the Gospels that we are following um, indicates two separate rejections at Nazareth. There are other harmonies, however, that combine them into one single rejection at Nazareth. And uh, so you may come across that depending on which harmony of the Gospels you're looking at. There's any number of ones out there for sale at all kinds of different prices. If you take the one that's produced by Austin Bible Church, though, it doesn't cost you a thing. So we recommend you do that. Anyway, let's uh, open with a word of prayer and we'll proceed to our study, shall we pray? Father, we do come before your throne of grace this morning, thankful for the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together. We recognize there are places where this freedom is not here. Father, we we want to thank you for getting Ulan and his wife and daughter out of Kyrgyzstan, and we continue to lift them up. Um, and pray, Father, that you would overrule the circumstances that are going to uh, ship them back to Germany, and, or ship them to Germany in the first place, and then back to uh, Kyrgyzstan again, Father. We ask that you might overrule the, uh, the bureaucrats, and we ask that you might uh, allow them to maybe come to the United States or somewhere else where freedom uh, is still possible. We just thank you and praise you now for this study, asking for your hand of blessing in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, the rejection of Nazareth. And I meant to leave this in my office, so let me turn this noisemaker off. My great fear is that someday this is going to happen. I'm going to get a phone call in the middle of Bible class. I've already decided what I'm going to do when that embarrassing moment happens. I'm going to answer the phone. I'm going to take the phone call and talk to whoever it is that's calling, and I'm going to ask them, why aren't you in Bible class? That's right. <laughs> All right, then. Rejection of Nazareth. Now, here in Luke chapter 4, we are observing a number of different matters, in particular, the relocation from the early ministry where he was co-located with John the Baptist in the Judean region and remained there until such time as uh, in the Gospel of John we read that the Pharisee uh, involvement was getting to the point where John the Baptist gets arrested and they were learning more things about Jesus Christ. In fact, they were keeping tabs on the Lord and recognizing, like we read in chapter 4, verse 1 of the Gospel of John, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. The Pharisees are about to promote Jesus to the number one on their most wanted list. And so, in the will of God, he departs. See, we studied the doctrine of fleeing, as a matter of fact, once upon a time in the life of David study. And running away is not always wrong. It's not always sinful. We know the Lord never sinned, so obviously when he chooses to make a tactical relocation. It is not uh, running away in fear, and it's not a retreat, so to speak. Um, but it is a relocation in the will of God. When the day does come, though, for him to be handed over, he will not run. He will stand there and allow himself to be arrested. He'll even freely confess to who he is. And uh, when the arresting guards all pass out, he wakes them up and says, you know, why are you passing out? You need to arrest me. And he goes to the cross, see. But until such time, he will not go to the cross. And we're going to see several times this is going to be the case. Right here in our context of Luke chapter 4, after he makes all the people angry, in verse 26, the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. I'm sorry, verse 28. 
as they heard these things, and they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. And that cliff is still there, by the way. If you ever tour Galilee, if you ever tour Nazareth, they'll take you. It's a local tourist spot, and they, the Arabs there are all too glad to take you to the spot and charge you a fee to show you the cliff that they were going to throw Jesus off of on the outskirts of, uh, of Nazareth. Well, this isn't going to happen. He won't allow it to happen. The Father won't allow it to happen. And since the Son is oriented to obeying the Father, we read in verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went his way. That he is going to be faithful to go to the cross and he's going to be faithful to not get killed prior to the cross. See, you say, well, isn't that obvious? Who wants to get killed? It becomes a very real temptation when you know the... Uh, I mean, there are things worse than death, obviously, and when you know that your own physical death brings you face to face with the Father, and when you know what a battle with evil the crucifixion is going to truly be, you recognize what the temptation might be there to die without the work on the cross. We'll have more of that coming up as we get towards the, uh, the crucifixion itself. So they relocate to Galilee. Now, it seems like it's a smart thing to do. Conflict was getting too harsh in Judea. The Pharisees were getting too uh, interested in what was going on. And the possibility of being arrested and being put to death too early was, was very real. And so relocating seems pretty smart. But it's more than just simply the, those external practical considerations. There are also spiritual things in view as well. He has to have a Galilean ministry because that also is a fulfillment of Scripture. And we will see that when we get to the second part of our study uh, this morning, that is the relocation to um, Capernaum. And we'll address that, the move to Capernaum. We'll look at that in our third outline point in uh, this part of the Gospel Harmony. If uh, you don't have a Harmony of the Gospels, we have them up front. You can get one before you leave this morning. They're just good to, good to follow along uh, week by week and kind of track our progress through this particular study. We're a good halfway down now, or near the, two-thirds of the way through page one. So... Uh, not bad, since there's three and a half pages of material and we're two-thirds through page one. I figure we might wrap up the study sometime before the millennium. Maybe. All right. Jesus now undertakes his first itinerant teaching ministry. He's going to have several itinerant teaching ministries. That means he's going from place to place to place. All right. Throughout Galilee, from city to city to city, throughout the synagogues. Ultimately, he will teach in other places beyond synagogues. He'll teach on hilltops. He'll teach uh, in boats. He'll teach on the lake. He'll teach on the shore. He'll find a variety of different places to teach. But he teaches on an itinerant basis as an evangelist might, as a missionary might, for example. He's not settling down and forming the, uh, the first Christian church of Capernaum and demanding that everybody comes to where he is. He is on an itinerant basis. And we are, in fact, the entire Galilean ministry is an itinerant ministry. We will see the Perean ministry is similar. We'll see when it goes through the region of Decapolis. There will be a lot of geographical studies coming up. Also, we take note that there are no disciples declared to be present at this time. Everything here appears to be alone. When, uh, in verse four, uh, 14, he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth. And everything here is referenced as a third-person singular, he. There is no reference to them. There is no reference to disciples being with him, such as we had in John 2 when he goes to Cana and he was invited to the wedding and his disciples also were invited. There we know very pointedly that the disciples were there. So as we followed it, he has James, John, Andrew, Peter, Right, the first four, and then he added Philip and Nathaniel that he added there, or Bartholomew that he added there in that early ministry. We know they were with him when he was traveling north because as they were passed through Samaria, he stayed out there by the well and talked to that woman while the disciples were going in there to buy food. So we know that they were with him as they traveled north, but evidently now at the arrival into Galilee is when. Everyone scatters, then it goes to their hometown. See that in Peter and John, or Peter and James and John all go to Capernaum. Uh, we, we assume that uh, Bethsaida was where Philip and Nathaniel were from, or, or we just don't know. 
So uh, we do know that uh, Nathaniel was from, uh, was from Cana, from the town where the wedding took place. In any event, the disciples are gone. And uh, we do make that observation. And it'll be significant, maybe not necessarily for this event, but it does help us to understand how the Fishers of Men passage comes to play, where Jesus comes and he calls them now to full-time service. And uh, skeptics look at that and say, well, we have these conflicting stories. You know, it seems like, you know, John tells us that they, uh, they were following John the Baptist and called to be in the ministry there in, in the early stages. Matthew says they were fishing in a boat and, and Jesus gives them the fishers of men, uh, you know, recruitment message. And skeptics view that as two different events, rightly so, but they view it as two different contradictory events. And there's where they go wrong. They're so eager to find contradictions and they're so eager to find flaws in the gospel record. Uh, sure, we can accept the fact that they're two separate events, but who's to say they have to be contradictory? Maybe they're complementary. Maybe that they occurred at different times, see, as is quite often the case with all kinds of different calls to the ministry. And there's a difference between being called to the ministry and being called into full-time ministry, for example. As I, you know, I can track my own callings in 1990 and then in 1995, and there's a five-year span of difference in between when I first recognized what my spiritual gift was when I first started training and preparing for it versus when... Uh, I became the pastor of this local church, for example, the, the five-year period of time in between. So there's no contradiction between the John 2 calling and the Matthew 4 calling, and we'll see that as we get into these upcoming events. We do observe, though, that in this one there are no disciples present. That helps us to uh, establish the context. Now, he's coming in the power of the Spirit, ente duname tu numatas, and this is establishing the pattern that we're going to see Repeatedly, Jesus Christ never utilizes sovereignty, never utilizes omnipotence, never taps into divine essence. He can if he wants to, because he can't stop being God. God is immutable, and Jesus can't stop being God, but he volitionally chooses not to utilize the powers of God. He's in the power of the Spirit, indicating his dependence on God's provision and not exercising his own divine essence. And I pointed out here, and I will probably point it out a hundred times between now and the cross. <laughs> All right? Because never, not once, does he ever utilize omnipotence. Not when he raises people from the dead. Not when he walks on water. Not when he multiplies loaves and fishes. There's no miracle you can point to and demonstrate from the text that it's omnipotence at work. He is a spirit-filled prophet accomplishing miracles in accordance with what would be expected for spirit-filled prophets of the Old Testament times. Don't lose track of the fact that because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are physically in your New Testaments of your Bible, all right, the New Testament doesn't begin until Acts chapter 2 when, when the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost. We're still dealing with the stewardship of Israel in the Old Testament economy, and Jesus Christ is an Old Testament prophet as far as uh, that particular aspect of his gift is concerned. And the reason why we stress this is so that we recognize that he was tempted in all things, even as we are, and yet without sin. He had to be tempted. He had to identify with us. He had to face his test like you and I face our tests, which means he couldn't use omniscience to figure out the solutions to his tests. You know, my problems would be really easy if I could tap into omniscience and figure out what the answer was. My problems would be even easier if I could tap into omnipotence and fix everything. If I could just, you know, absorb a little bit of omnipotence and then zap, turn my enemies into frogs or something, you know, you get a lot more cooperation that way. <laughs> no, we can't, we, you and I can't use omnipotence to solve all our problems. You know, you're running a little short on cash, no problem, poof, you know. No, we don't use omnipotence, so he didn't use omnipotence, because he has to identify with us. He has to be tempted in all things, even as we are. Otherwise, he's not our substitute. That's why he comes in the flesh to begin with. That's why he comes in true humanity. He doesn't just appear as the angel of the Lord and accomplish our redemption. The angel of the Lord couldn't accomplish our redemption. It had to be humanity. It had to be the God-man. God in the flesh to accomplish our salvation. All right. So, we spotlight the power of the Holy Spirit in this point here. 
Secondly, his teaching was universally praised. We examined that last week. And thirdly, we also examined how he developed a pattern to his teaching. He developed a pattern to his teaching. We have the term custom here, as was his custom. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. There's nothing wrong with, in your ministry, falling into customs or patterns or habits. Find what you're comfortable with. Find what works. Find uh, a regularity to your ministry, whatever that might be. A regularity to your prayer life. A regularity to your witnessing. A regularity to your church attendance. A regularity to your prayer meetings. A regularity to your Bible reading. Just find a custom, find a regularity so that this becomes a consistent part of your life. And this is typical of Jesus Christ, as was his custom. He fell into such habits or patterns. Some people get critical of that and say, well, you know, I want something new. I want something different. The pastor's too boring. (laughs) All right. Oh, well, see, we all have habits and patterns. It's not necessarily a bad thing if it is a positive thing now bear that in mind too human beings tend to be addictive human beings do tend to fall into ruts and that also holds true for our sin patterns you can find uh, habitually uh, you're falling short in the same besetting sin again and again and again and again so that's something to be uh, on guard against now in the synagogue in the nazareth synagogue jesus read a selection from isaiah and then proclaimed that selection to be presently fulfilled and then proclaim that selection to be presently fulfilled. And Jesus has the opportunity to do this many, many, many times because the Old Testament effectively is all about him. <laughs> right? And so when he is revealed, when he is baptized, when he begins his earthly ministry, uh, it's quite easy for him to take any text of the Old Testament and bring it to application with respect to who he is, what he's doing, and so forth. But he has to be careful, and he does so in this text, to apply the rightly divide the word of truth and to differentiate between a first advent application and a second advent application. And that's what he does here. All right. We can do something similar when we are dealing with a text that pertains to the church age. Then we can read a passage, we can stop, we can spotlight it and say, okay, that's us. We can say, this is a scripture that deals with us because we're dealing with a passage that pertains to the church age. Well, at the time Jesus was ministering, the church was still uh, mystery and unrevealed in its current form. And so everything he had available to him in terms of an Old Testament literally pointed to him in either a first or second advent fulfillment. I mean, every single thing. The, the celebrity of the universe is Jesus Christ. And when he rebukes the Pharisees, he even uses Moses against them. And Moses was their idol. They loved Moses. They seated themselves in the chair of Moses. And Jesus said, you know, Moses wrote about me. <laughs> and if those weren't fighting words, say, I don't know what was. Because uh, to use Moses and how they revered him, how they almost idolized him, was quite, uh, quite effective in dealing with the Pharisees. So he reads this selection, and the bulk of our time in last week's message was focused on this, and so I just want to remind ourselves what we dealt with and then move on this morning. But we pointed out how Luke 4, verses 18 and 19, is a quote from Isaiah 61, verse 1, and then the first third of verse 2 is verse 1 through 2a. Verse 1 through verse 2a. And I don't mind going through this again, because for some folks last week was the first time you ever saw this. Hold your finger on Luke 4 and then turn back to Luke 61. Turn back to Luke 61. I'm sorry, Isaiah. Yeah, good luck trying to find Luke 61. All right, Isaiah 61. Aren't too many books of the Bible that have 61 chapters. All right. Psalms and Isaiah. I mean, that's it. Jeremiah tops out at 52 chapters, and uh, Isaiah's got 66. And if you've never thought about it, the 66 chapters of Isaiah match very well with the 66 books of the Bible. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. 39 Old Testament books, and there's a real transition 
between Isaiah 39 and Isaiah 40 and following, starting in Isaiah 40, you start to talk about grace a whole lot more, just like you do when you get to the 27 New Testament books. Anyway, Isaiah kind of gives us an outline of the entire Bible. But now Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And there's not even a period there because it goes on to and the day of the vengeance of our God, semicolon. But Jesus stopped his reading with to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stopped and he rolled up the scroll and he handed it back to the attendant and he sat down. So he read verse one and verse two a and the portion that he omitted. That's Isaiah 61 verse two parts B and C. There's only three parts to that second verse, an A, B, and a C. But the part that he omitted, Isaiah 61, verse 2, B and C, all the way through verse 11, that's all second Adventist application. The day of vengeance, comfort for mourning, uh, garland instead of ashes. All of this is the, the role of Jesus Christ who's going to pull Israel out of the great tribulation and grant them the comforts and the blessings of the millennial reign. And so when he rolls up the scroll after the first part of verse 2, he has ended the first Advent portion of that text, and he's able to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All right? And this then becomes vital in a lot of different ways because it helps us to understand how to handle Old Testament scriptures in the New Testament. And there's nothing wrong with doing what Christ did and taking a portion of a passage and isolating it, differentiating it from other portions of the very same text. Because quite frequently, you'll have a text like that. Can I blink that out? I can't. Where you have, you have a text like that and we, we can recognize in the very same verse, this is First Advent. And we can recognize that this is second advent. Now, you and I can spot that. Do you know why we can spot that? Because of our perspective. We can look back to first advent. We can look forward to second advent. The church age is the dispensation that is uniquely situated in between the two advents of Jesus Christ. where we have a clear picture both directions. What has been fulfilled already, what has yet to be fulfilled. Whereas Old Testament prophets, all they were doing was looking forward and they saw prophecies and they didn't recognize that they were two different events. They're looking forward. Think about depth perception. Think about a perspective at a distance and you can't necessarily tell what's in between because you can't see anything in between. Uh, I can look to the back of the room and I can see a big old wooden recording desk back there and I can see part of B3 sitting behind the recording desk back there. But I cannot see his feet. I cannot see his pants. I cannot see anything below the waist. I can see the top of his shirt. But I don't know what might be in between the recording desk and him because the recording desk blocks part of that view. Now, if I was to walk back there and walking between the recording desk and Bob, then I'd be able to see clearly. And that's where we are here. And the idea of two different times was unknown. It's not their fault they didn't know the difference between first advent and second advent. It's not their fault that they didn't know that this was, uh, this was going to happen with him born in uh, 6 to 4 B.C., with him crucified in uh, 32 A.D. Um, they didn't know that uh, it is 32, right? Not 33. 33 A.D., I'm sorry. I used to believe in the 32 date. 33 A.D., all right. When's second advent going to be? We don't know. But it's already 2005 right now. We've got at least seven years to go for the tribulation. So we're at a minimum of 2012 A.D. minimum for when the second advent's going to occur. We don't know. 
Now, is it, is it Daniel's fault or Isaiah's fault or Ezekiel's fault or any Old Testament prophet's fault that he didn't know that this was going to happen separated by 2,000 years from this? They didn't know that. And there was no way they could know that. And the real question was, and they wrestled with the Lord, they asked, and uh, it wasn't revealed to them, is um, two possibilities. Either these events were going to be... Because, see, they had a suffering Messiah and they had a reigning Messiah. They had the suffering prophecies and they had the reigning prophecies. Which ones were more popular with the people? <laughs> which ones preached better? You know, which ones uh, were easier for the prophets to, you know, get across and, and make the folks happy? And, you know, obviously it was the reigning Messiah. These passages uh, weren't as popular. You can imagine how they would fall into disuse. And plus, it just would be hard to imagine. How can you suffer and reign? See? And so they were wrestling with the concept. And some would come to the conclusion, a few would come to understand, well, maybe there's two different times involved. And if they would have come to that guess, they would have been right. But it still would have been a guess. All right? Something else they could have guessed is maybe there's two different people. Maybe we're going to have two different Christs. Maybe there's going to be a suffering Christ, and then maybe there's going to be a reigning Christ. Maybe there's two different people involved. See, if uh, the Son is going to come as the suffering Christ, maybe the Holy Spirit will appear as the reigning Christ. You know, who knows? They don't know. They're speculating. They're guessing. They're trying to determine, and yet it's not being demonstrated to them. All right? So... Have I used up all your fingers now? You still got a finger at Luke 4. You still got a finger at Isaiah 61. Find another finger to go to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. And you can give up on your Isaiah finger. We're, we're done with Isaiah now. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Because this ultimately was the question for the Old Testament prophets. Was it two different times? Was it two different people? They don't understand how the suffering Christ and this reigning Christ can be harmonized. And they're not like the skeptics and liberals today that just mock everything and say, well, it's a contradiction, so nothing's true. No, they recognize that it's not a contradiction, that these are complementary prophecies and they both are true. Now, it says in 1 Peter 1.10, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. So we don't criticize Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel or any of these prophets for being sloppy. They were careful searches. They were Bible students and they had access to the throne of grace. <laughs> they could prophetically ask questions and get answers back. Seeking to know what person or time. You see it there? What person or time. And these were the, these were the questions I put up here on the board. Are they two different per times? Are they two different people, two different persons? They were trying to learn, what is it going to be? Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now, we understand the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow because this is where we are. Sufferings of Christ and glories to follow. Peter can write this now in 1 Peter knowing what he knows, knowing what's revealed to the church. But Isaiah doesn't know any of this. He can't know any of this, even though he's making careful searches and inquiries, seeking to determine what person or time. Are there two different people? Are there two different Christs? Or is it the one Christ coming two different times? And how is this going to work? And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In other words, they weren't going to get the answer. The church age is getting the answer. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now the church is in a position to know these things that have previously been hidden. Now the church knows that it's not two people, it's two times. Bingo, we can answer it. 
Because we can look back, we can look forward, and we have the mystery doctrine of the church revealed to us, and the, the panorama of God's plan has become clear. Interestingly enough, he was hidden from Israel, but it was also hidden from the angels. Much of what God kept in mystery form was for the purpose of not tipping off the fallen angels and the angelic conflict to certain things. All right. Is this making sense? Because this ultimately is what we're going to address again. We'll come back to this. This ultimately is what we're going to address when John the Baptist is growing discouraged in prison right before he loses his head. And he says, are you the one that we're looking for or should we look for another? Now, some people think that John was just an idiot there and he was growing weak in faith and all that. He wasn't. John was brilliant, thinking things through and starting to consider that the real answer is that there's two different people involved. See, he's making careful search and inquiry, seeking to determine what person or time the Spirit of Christ within him was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. John the Baptist is now starting to consider that, you know what? God the Father is going to bring this about through two different people, through two different Christ, not just one. So he's not becoming a weak sister, growing weak in the faith kind of thing. He's starting to solidify his understanding that this is the, uh, that this is the answer. Are you the Christ or do we, are you the one and only Christ or do we look for another? Is there another Christ coming along? It is a perfectly legitimate question if we apply 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 to the circumstance and we can quit, we can get off of John's back as being some kind of a, a coward because he's in jail. All right. So stay tuned because we'll have more of that coming up. Back to Luke 4 and the Lord's teaching here in the text. So this is something that we want to do. We want to rightly divide the word of truth. And we're not destroying the text when we do this. We are handling it accurately as workmen needing not to be ashamed. And this is what Jesus did when he interpreted Isaiah 61. He stopped mid-verse in order to explain the dispensational significance of the text. Although other Galileans were praising his spirit-empowered and grace-oriented teaching, the Nazarenes could not overlook his earthly family and upbringing. (laughs) The prophet is without honor in his own town. There's power in this teaching. There's grace falling from his lips. But the Nazarenes just cannot overlook his earthly family, his background, their history that they have with this kid. He's not a kid anymore. He's at least he's over 30 years of age. He's probably 35 years of age by this point of time. Or older. As we recognize it, is this not Joseph's son? I can't get over it. <laughs> and he says to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. They think that they're going to get special privileges because he's one of them. You know, the local Nazareth boy makes good and man, what are we going to get out of it now? Kind of thing. You know, small town kid makes it to the big leagues and he spends some of his millions back home. You know, he builds a ballpark for him. He, he uh, offers scholarship to little league kids and all kinds of things. You know, that's normal. We'd expect that. I mean, look at everything Michael Dell's done for Austin, you know, with the billions he's made here. Well, here they're expecting, wow, we've got our own prophet. (laughs) Think what he can do. He can heal people. He can do all these things. The message they get, though, is quite the opposite. Jesus concluded his message that day with an admonishment that the Nazarenes could not expect special privileges because he was one of them. And this is what I want to key in on our time remaining. He concluded his message that day with an admonishment that they're not going to get special privileges. In so many ways, this is a microcosm. This little episode here is a picture of all the Jews. All the Jewish people thought that they had special privileges just because of their race. Because they were children of Abraham. You know, hey, we're in the right family. We were born of the right parents. We're racially Jewish. We're going to go to heaven. We're God's chosen people. Well, slow down. Wait a minute. 
You need to believe in Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Don't think that you can say, well, we're children of Abraham. You know what? That doesn't impress God. He can lift up stones to be children of Abraham. We'll deal more with that when we get to the the real combat that takes place in John chapter 8. But how many people today think that, well, I'm in the right church? You know, how many Catholics are convinced they're going to go to heaven because they're in the Catholic church? They're in the right church. I did a funeral a while back for a Catholic lady who had left the Catholic church. She was sick and tired of it. Wanted nothing to do with it. Thought the whole thing was phony, full of hypocrites. And and she left that church, never darkened the door of another Catholic church again for decades. She died. I think she was regenerate. I don't know. I never met her, actually. <laughs> met her daughters. It's kind of hard to preach a funeral for someone you don't know. You just kind of base it upon what you do know and then just give a gospel message after that. But her family was very livid at the thought that she uh, didn't die a Catholic. Ooh, no, no, no. She died a Catholic. She was a Catholic. See, she never left the Catholic Church. Oh, no, no, no. She died a Catholic. See, I'm not sure where they got that. I know I didn't do any mumbo-jumbo, hocus-pocus, last rite ritual kind of thing. Okay? It's not about what race you are, what church you're in, or any other external thing that qualifies you. It's are you placing your faith in Jesus Christ? And so they really form a little microcosm, as it were, of all the Jewish arrogance, thinking that just being a child of Abraham was sufficient. He gives them two typical proverbs, and he gives them two typical prophets to illustrate his point. So subpoint A, two typical proverbs illustrate his point. He quotes a proverb in verse 23 and another proverb in verse 24. Physician, heal yourself. There's a typical proverb. Uh, a prophet is with is uh, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. There's another proverb. <laughs> All right. So which one do you want to do you want to quote? And then two typical prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And that's what I'm going to focus on here. Two typical prophets illustrate his point. He says, you know what? There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, there was no shortage of widows in, in his day. But Elijah was sent to none of them. You know, could they claim special treatment with Elijah? Could they claim privileges and say, hey, Elijah, you know, do a miracle. Help us out. No. In fact, Elijah was the prophet that was utilized to, uh, to say the prayer that stopped the rain in the first place. Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. All right, now you can find this story back in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 9 through 24. So join me there, 1 Kings 17. If you're not familiar with this, 1 Kings 17. I'm going to put the uh, text up here. I think, just judging from... What I've observed in the folks I've spoken to in this church and elsewhere, um, I think that uh, our basic Old Testament understanding is better in the Pentateuch. <laughs> We're okay in Genesis. We're okay in Exodus. We can do okay with the Exodus out of Egypt, the wilderness wanderings, getting in the promised land with Joshua. Even down through David, through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, because we did so much work in life of David. But from what I've observed in most churches, including this one, believers get real sketchy after Solomon. Get real sketchy. And even with Solomon, they're not so slick with Solomon other than the fact that he was David's son. <laughs> All right. David's king, and then the thing with Bathsheba and the adultery and all that, and then Solomon gets born, now Solomon becomes king, David dies. Then what? Okay? Because from Solomon to Jesus Christ is another thousand years. That's a lot of time. And given the divided kingdom, after, what you say, what divided kingdom? <laughs> well, after Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam takes the throne, the kingdom is divided. 
and there's a rebellion and, and Jeroboam takes ten tribes and splits off and forms an entirely separate Jewish country called Israel. And Rehoboam is then king over the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, a kingdom called Judah. And we have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. I think we're very sketchy, flat out weak on First and Second Kings, on uh, that portion of the Old Testament chronology. So, I don't mind taking the time. And, and when you deal with the prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Ezekiel, I mean, Hosea. Was he sent to the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom? How about Jeremiah? Northern kingdom or southern kingdom? What about uh, Ezekiel? What about, you know, and, and you start throwing out kings, you start throwing out prophets, and when did they minister? See, and where is the book of Hezekiah anyway? Right, there is no book of Hezekiah, but there's a prominent kingdom, Hezekiah, and he's found in Second Kings. He's also referenced extensively in the book of Isaiah. A very prominent character. He doesn't have his own book, but he's prominent. All right, so when we turn back to First Kings, and this is kind of helpful, Elijah's in First Kings, Elisha's in Second Kings. Okay. Um, we turn back to Elijah then, 1 Kings 17, Elijah the Tishbite, and uh, verses 9 through 24. Somebody asked me the other day, why do I have two Greek texts up there, like when I was in the Gospel of Luke? Why do I have two Greek texts? Well, I like the... Uh, critical Greek text, but I also like the majority Greek text. And so if there's a difference between the two Greek texts, I like having them side by side so I can spot a difference in the manuscripts. Also, if you have two Greek texts open at the same time, it's handy because when you go to the Old Testament, you can tell one of them to go to the Hebrew. You can tell the other one to go to the Septuagint. And so uh, that's what just happened there. When we went back to 1 Kings 17, one of those windows went to the Hebrew text. The other one went to the Septuagint text, the Greek Septuagint text. And you can keep your your windows arranged on the desktop that way. If you want um, to learn how to do that in your own Logos software, let me know. I'd be glad to, uh, to sit down at your machine and set that up for you. It's a real handy tool to have. All right, First Kings 17.9. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Now, Sidon was Canaanite. When you track the sons of Ham and the sons of Canaan, the very people that were told to be wiped out in the conquest, Sidon was the firstborn. So if ever there was a people that should be wiped out, it would be these Canaanites. And yet we, we recognize that they weren't wiped out. Joshua's conquest was incomplete. The faith of the tribes was incomplete. And they didn't wipe out everyone they were supposed to wipe out. And so the Sidonians become uh, uh, a thorn in their side for quite some time. But here they're going to be a blessing. Go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Now, how can he command a widow to provide for him? See, because she's a believer. She's a Gentile believer who has faith in the Lord God. She's not Jewish. She's a Gentile believer in the dispensation of Israel. And she's going to be an instrument for blessing. So he arose, went to Zarephath. <laughs> now, he's not like a Jonah. He's not saying, well, I don't want to go there. I don't like those Sidonians. I think I'll get on a boat and sail to Tarshish somewhere. No. He accepts the will of God. He goes to the Gentile people. He accepts the fact that there will be Gentile blessing for him during that time. He arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me... Uh, a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, as the Lord your God lives. What a woman. What faith in this Gentile woman. She knows who Jehovah is. She calls him here Yahweh. She calls him Yahweh. But she recognizes that she's a Gentile dog. And uh, Yahweh is not the God of her people. Yahweh is the God of the Jews. And I like that phrase there, as the Lord your God lives. Here's the Yahweh. So she knows who Yahweh is. And Eloheka, your God. Not her God, your God. All right. 
As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl, and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Now, is that grumbling? Is that negative? A lot of folks take it that way. And say that she's just in total despair. She said, oh, well, I'm just going to, I'm fixing my last meal here. We're going to die. No. She is embracing the fact. I mean, everyone's going to die. This is a huge famine. It's hurting the Jewish people. It's hurting the Sidonian people. It's hurting all kinds of people. And she's not griping about it. She's just recognizing this is what it is, and she's ready to go die. You know, there's a certain peace that comes about it in terms of dying grace when you know, okay, now's the time it's going to happen. But Elijah said to her, do not fear, go. Do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first. Bring it out to me. Afterward, you may make one for yourself and for your son. You realize what kind of faith this takes on her part to believe what this prophet's telling her? Because if you only have enough flour for one cake, I mean, you know what your recipe makes because you've made this recipe before. You know how much... You know, how many, how much of the ingredients you need to have and all the rest of this. This is an extraordinary statement. Go bake one for me first. Afterward, you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty. until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. Here's a miracle. She's going to be given divinely empowered Tupperware. <laughs> All right. Don't know how that works. But no matter how much flour she takes out of this bowl, she puts the lid back on, takes the lid off, it's full of flour again. No matter how much oil she takes out of the thing, she puts the lid back on, takes the lid off, it's full of oil again. What a provision. See. And for God, it's no big deal. No, he, he provided for Israel throughout their 40 years of wilderness wanderings. Their clothing never ran out. Their shoes never run out, never wore out. I don't know about you, but I, I tend to wear through a pair of shoes before too long. And they were walking through the wilderness, walking through the desert and heat and terrible conditions and sand and rocks and all kinds of things. And their shoes never wore out. Their clothing never wore out. And so he's promising that uh, your bowl of flour will not be exhausted. The jar of oil will not be empty. That's a pretty powerful bowl and a pretty powerful jar. But God gifted her with that provision. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and, and, and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. But see, she had to place her faith in that promise. She had to go and do so. Just like Elijah had to go and do so. She had to go and do so. And this is the nature of walking by faith and claiming promises. And this is the provision. Now, why was there not a Jewish woman that was designated to do this? It may have been there was not a Jewish woman with the faith to believe in such a promise. <laughs> All right. Countless times when Jesus Christ goes, for example, and he himself is going to have ministry with a Phoenician woman. There's going to be a Syrophoenician woman that's going to come and beg him for a miracle. And he'll say, I wasn't sent to the Gentiles. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She says, yes, I know, but even dogs can eat from the table scraps. And you realize that Syrophoenician woman that Jesus ministers to is from the same race, the same geography, the same territory as this woman here of Zarephath, the Sidonian region, the Syrophoenician region there on the coast of Israel. So... Um, it's extraordinary, the parallelism between Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus Christ. We're going to see much more of that coming up. And he will, Jesus will be amazed. He says, I never found such faith among all Israel. So, let me just read the rest of this here in 1 Kings 17. It came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. His sickness was so severe there was no breath left in him. <laughs> He's going to die. She said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and put my son to death. And he said to her, give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room. Anyway, he's going to bring the child back to life. The typology is, again, extraordinary. Elijah resurrected one. 
Elisha is going to resurrect two. Both of them paint a picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ brings three back from the dead. And the, the pattern of Elijah, Elisha combining together to be the picture of Jesus Christ is, uh, is interesting. All right, the second typical prophet was the example of Elisha. And that's in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. This was the story we read at the picnic a couple weeks ago out at uh, the Beverages House when we had the Sunday afternoon picnic. The Bible study we did was from 2 Kings chapter 5, the story of Naaman, the, the Syrian uh, that was a leper that came to be healed. Again, when Jesus Christ is teaching this, he says, you know what? There were many lepers in Elisha's day. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. As Jesus tells them, there were many widows in, Elisha, in Elijah's day. There were many lepers in Elisha's day. Don't presume to think that you're accorded any special privileges because of who you are, or who you're related to, or who you know. That is entirely cosmic in its thinking, the cosmos wisdom of this world. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Right? You're familiar with that? You're familiar with how business operates? You're familiar with how the world functions? Different things? <laughs> it's the way of the cosmos. It's not the way of God the Father. It's not the way of His plan. Just because you're from Nazareth, no special treatment. Anyway, the story there in Second Kings chapter 5, I'll let you read through that yourself. Uh, but that was our message at uh, the... Uh, picnic when we had that Sunday. I do enjoy the timelines. They help you to at least get a sequence in terms of the prophets. There are different ones that are available. This one's by J.C. Whitcomb, which I like. Actually, I like Smith better, but Smith doesn't include Elijah and Elisha. Uh, Smith limits himself to the writing prophets. Elijah and Elisha weren't writing prophets. They didn't write books. You don't have the book of Elijah. He's featured in First Kings, but he didn't write a book. Likewise, you don't have the book of Elisha. It's featured in 2 Kings, but he didn't write a book. There's plenty like that. There's a prophetess named Huldah. You know, you find her in 2 Kings, you find her in, uh, in Jeremiah, I think. But she didn't write a book. There's no book of Huldah anywhere. All right? So you have your non-writing prophets as well as your writing prophets. And uh, the different timelines that you can look at are just helping you keep them in order. If you find a real good chart, you'll find one where the kings are uh, interspersed with the prophets. See, I like Smith's timeline, but he uh, doesn't include the non-writing prophets, so we don't see Elijah and Elisha on there. This is one by Payne. But the best ones include uh, the kings as well as the... Uh, as well as the prophets. So get yourself some good timelines and start to learn this second millennium. I think from 2000 B.C. to 1000 B.C., when we go from Abraham to Solomon, we're a lot more solid on that period of Old Testament history. But from Solomon to the end of the Old Testament, from Solomon to Malachi, I think we're very weak. And then in the between Testament times, unless you've done some study on the, on the intertestamental period, we're all pretty much clueless in that uh, in that regard as well. All right. In your Through the Bible Notebook, by the way, there is a, um, an excellent chart that has the prophets as well as the northern kingdom versus southern kingdom as well as the kings that they ministered to. It's an outstanding chart. And uh, I recommend that you refer to that for any of these Old Testament studies. All right. The fifth point and the final point of this event, the Nazarenes were filled with pride and driven to attempted murder. Nazarenes were filled with pride and driven to attempted murder. Refer to pride as motivating rage. Motivating rage. <laughs> we talk about crimes of passion. You know, husband comes home from work and he observes his wife in the act of adultery, or the wife comes home and observes the husband, or whatever, and, and faced, confronted with the, the shock of seeing it with your very eyes, you're filled with this kind of rage, and so you're not 
responsible. You can claim an insanity defense, that you weren't thinking, that it was just an act of passion without thought. It was not premeditated. And you can uh, claim, if you can find a jury to buy it, you can claim that uh, you are uh, not guilty of premeditated first-degree murder. And you can beg for leniency and maybe they'll convict you of a lesser charge of uh, manslaughter or a lesser charge of second-degree murder or something that wasn't premeditated well (laughs) that's in the eyes of the laws of the state of texas anyway in biblical terms this motivating rage is really nothing more than pride really nothing more than pride as it's expressed in terms of selfishness expressed in, in as the motivating anger for the activity and as we read it here All the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. Why? What what takes a message and makes people react to it? Just pride. That's all it is. Who does he think he is? How dare he talk to us this way? Doesn't he know who we are? All right. Same thing happens today. Believers have to make sure they're objective to receive the word of God. That's how we start with silent prayer. That's why we are thankful for the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's why we ask for eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. So that we can accept the tough messages. When the scripture says reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, sometimes the message is not fun. Pleasant, but we need it. We need to be rebuked. We need to be corrected, but we have to be humble to accept it. See, as the proverb says, a wise man loves a reproof, but the fool will spurn it. Pride won't let you accept it. Pride will obviously convince you that, well, that doesn't apply to me. <laughs> I don't have that problem. I don't want, I don't know why the pastor's picking on, you know. These other people, because obviously he's not talking about me. I'm perfect. <laughs> so the message hits you and you just grab your shovel and you shovel it back behind you. It's obviously designed for whoever it is sitting back there behind you. No, maybe it's designed for you if you care to accept it. All right. Motivated with uh, motivating rage, filled with pride, driven to attempted murder. They got up and drove him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill on their city on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Pride, the motivating rage, murder, the expression of it. And as the Lord will tell the people in the Sermon on the Mount, long before you ever commit the murder, when you have that kind of pride and anger in your heart, you've already committed it. You familiar with that? Matthew chapter 5. Likewise, uh, 1 John chapter 3. Let me give you these correlating passages. Matthew chapter 5. We're almost out of time here. Matthew chapter 5. Just like uh, the mental attitude of lust is behind every external deed of adultery, the mental attitude of anger, motivated by pride, is behind every murder. So that's Matthew 5, 21 through 22. Everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. First John chapter 3. The motivating influence of pride and how it is that we have the role of our adversary involved here. First John 3.15 Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. <laughs> so raise your hand if you've ever been angry. If you've ever had hatred. Well, see, then you're a murderer. Of course, you're a murderer anyway, because if you break one part of the law, you've broken all the law. So, you know, we're all murderers, we're all adulterers, we're all thieves. If you've broken one part of the law, you're guilty of the whole law. But everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In any event, the motivations... We've got to recognize, and if we can catch the mental attitude sins and confess them there, that's taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. That's maintaining the short accounts. That's preventing it from getting to the sin in the tongue stage or the overt stage. And that's ultimately what we are looking for. 
All right, next week we will resume and uh, pick it up with a third event, the relocation to uh, Capernaum, and then the uh, Fishers of Men, where he calls his first disciples, and we'll break those down one week from today, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, and I pray that these uh, things, we've, we looked at a number of different subjects this morning, uh, some of which may not may not communicate immediately, Father, the dispensational distinctions, the aspect of the Old Testament prophets uh, seeking to determine what uh, time or person. Uh, A lot of these are detailed studies, Father, that will take more work to deal with and things that we'll be looking at coming up with John the Baptist. So I just pray that you would take hold of this message, implant it within our souls, supply for us, Father, good depth of soil. Clear away the stony ground, clear away the thorny ground. Give us good depth of soil to bear fruit, 30, 60, 100-fold, whatever you would have. And, Father, let, uh, let the Word of Christ dwell richly within us. If it's something that we don't comprehend immediately, well, Father, let it dwell richly anyway. Let us chew on it for a while. Let it simmer. Let us do. Uh, but, Father, bring it to our remembrance and uh, bring it to our understanding when we need it to apply for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.